Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> that's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. Your ears do not deceive you. You have just entered the Cryptid Creator Corner brought to you by your friends at Comic Book Yeti. So without further ado, let's get on to the interview. All right, welcome everybody to Comic Book Yeti's newest podcast. It is the uh, Cryptid Creator Corner. This is Jimmy Gasparro, your host today, and I am very excited. I am here with C. Spike Trotman from Iron Circus uh, Comics based out of Chicago, Illinois, and here to talk about all kinds of things in terms of um, uh, Spike and Iron Circus and crowdfunding, as well as the newest project being crowdfunded by Iron Circus itself, the Poor Craft Cookbook. Uh, welcome, uh, Spike. How are you doing? I'm doing great. How are you? I'm, I'm doing well. Um, so I, I guess I just want kind of want to get, you know, right into things and, you know, find out more about you and Iron Circus itself, which you started um, publishing comic books in was it 2007? Oh God! Um, <laughs> if we're going to if we're going to be all encompassing, if we're going to count every little thing, it was high school, so 90s. I was making mini comics and I was running them off on photocopy machines and I was selling them in high school. So if we're going to count every little bit, this is something I've been doing since I was 16, 17, around that age. But Iron Circus itself, it became official, uh, I think, it's so bizarre that I have to like think about it. I think it was 2007 and I like to say it was 2007 because that's when I got like my official business license. I put my big girl pants on and registered Iron Circus as an LLC. So, but okay. I was making comics way before then. All right, sure. And uh, you had a, uh, uh, a webcomic, Templar, Arizona, Oh, before God. Iron Circus officially started, <laughs> I I I'm, I want to try and find out. You know, I want to. Reaching back into the late it. Mesolithic, I see. <laughs> no, I think it's I think it's important. I want to I want to I I think it's fascinating to to not only make comics but want to start uh, yeah. a a publishing company. And now that that journey from making comics in high school to Templar, Arizona to mm. Iron Circus. And you've, it, I think um, what I read was through Kickstarter, raised over 2.5 million over 30 different successfully funded projects. And now I have started with the Poor Craft Cookbook crowdfunding on the, the, the it, through Iron Circus itself. I, I think that's, you know, yeah, fascinating. I, uh, that's incredible. I, I was a Kickstarter early adopter, and it's bizarre to have to even say this now, but in 2009, when Kickstarter first launched, using it was considered disreputable, and it lacked class, and, you know, certain creators would refer to it as begging, and it's like, just stand on the corner like a hobo with your hat out if you're going to use Kickstarter. I wouldn't be caught dead using that, and of course, they now all run Kickstarters. Not as big as mine, but they run them. And... <laughs> and, and no, I will never miss an opportunity to say that. But a thing that, like, in, in case you folks just want to hear how small potatoes I started out, the very first 
Kickstarter I ran was for a poor craft book. How's that for poetry? Uh, it's just like my my first my first crowdfund off of Kickstarter is a poor craft book, and my first crowdfund on Kickstarter was a poor craft book. In Kickstarter's case, it was the original poor craft, and I think I asked for six thousand dollars. That was the goal amount, and it ended up making thirteen thousand dollars. And I remember reading forum posts, you know, back when people used forums in 2009, talking about how, oh, well, you know, any comic pitch that can just ask for $13,000 and get it has no business being on Kickstarter because that's way too much money. Wow. Yeah, $13,000 project, way too much money. (laughs) Wow, indeed. But Yeah. yeah, that was the beginning of something really, really incredible, frankly. It was sort of the jet fuel in the engine of Iron Circus. Uh, I ran my second Kickstarter after Porecraft. I want to say it was for Smut Peddler. I could be wrong. I think it was. And Smut Peddler was just another one of those projects that I would love to do, but I didn't want to be like that person in the small press that asked people to contribute to projects without paying them. You know, I, like th- there was so much of that around. I'm sure there's still a lot of it around, but it was even more inescapable, like in 2011, 2012-ish, because people just didn't expect you to pay them for, for anthologies in a lot of ways, because like that's how small, small time they were. Small press anthologies like didn't pay. How you got, you know, air quotes paid for a small press anthology is you got contributors copies and you would sell them at conventions and that's how you got paid. And I didn't sure. want to do that. I, I paid people a basic page rate out of my own pocket. And then I said, and if the Kickstarter does well, you'll get a bonus on top of that. And everyone seemed comfortable with that. And when I pressed the launch on the launch button on that Kickstarter for the very first Smut Peddler anthology, although I, I feel it's important to highlight, I did not actually invent the Smut Peddler anthology. It is a title that I took on from Saucy Goose Press after they stopped publishing it. Um, I pressed launch on it and I was hoping it might hit 40,000 and it ended up hitting something like 83,000. And that was, that was like our first big, Oh wow moment. And it was also like the first anthology we ran, which kind of established what's now considered sort of the Diriger, how it's done anthology protocol on Kickstarter, which is the more the project makes, the more, the people who contribute to the project makes. So in my case, the way it started out is people get a raise every $10,000 the project made, and then they got a raise every $5,000. And so now, like a great example is the most recent, frankly, the last anthology project that I ran on Kickstarter uh, was for a collection of North American indigenous folk tales and fairy tales uh, told by indigenous artists and writers and that ended up clearing something like 300 almost 330 maybe 330 330,000 I should say and the creators of that book walked away with like you know Marvel League paychecks and I was really (laughs) proud of that but yeah Kickstarter 30 something projects almost 2.5 million over the course of 10-ish 11-ish 12-ish years wow yeah when when you decide when you first are getting started and when you are having success with these projects, how do you decide 
for Iron Circus what it is you want to do? I mean, I just I'm fairly new to mm-hmm. you know seeing things on Kickstarter and backing things on Kickstarter and in you know interviewing folks in, in comics, but you know sometimes the anthologies can be hit or miss. It depends. I I, I oh, yeah. was able to interview. Um, I think some of the editors behind the cautionary fables and fairy tales, North America. And it was to see the success that had was, you know, incredible. And to see so many indigenous creators that are, that were involved in it uh, and telling these really fantastical and, and wonderful stories was, was great, but you'll see other anthologies that look wonderful and, and don't do, you know, nearly as well. So when, when you're first starting out and you're, you're out on your own and you're, using Kickstarter to raise funds. Like, how are you picking your projects when you first got started? How, how are you deciding this is, what's, this is what I think is going to do well or this is what I want to see out in the world? Honestly, the joke that I tell is the only hurdle you have to get over at Iron Circus is do I like it? Like, <laughs> that, that is how we decide what we publish. You know, we still have a open door submissions policy. If you follow the instructions on the submissions page and turn in a submission. We will read it and we will go over it. And at this point, Iron Circus, just for folks who don't know, it's run out of a Slack. There are about 12, 13 people in the Slack at this point. But if I don't like it, even if like everyone else likes it and they can't talk me into it, if they can't be all like, no, 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 you should go for it because X, Y, Z, it doesn't, it doesn't go anywhere. It doesn't fly. So pretty much every Iron Circus book you've ever seen come out, it's there because I like it. And I, I <laughs> honestly, it, it's no deeper than that. It's just my taste <laughs> level. And quite frankly, uh, there are times where you can find me in the Slack functionally throwing a tantrum because there will be a book that we publish and it doesn't perform like I feel it should. And I'm all like, That's, this isn't fair. This should like have sold 50,000 copies by now. This is brilliant. This is amazing. What is wrong with people? Wah, 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 wah. But... <laughs> I think every publisher kind of has those moments. They have books that they really believe in that just don't find the audience either right away or even potentially at all. And, and you just kind of sit there in the corner, you know, with your arms crossed and frowning and being all like, you guys suck. You don't know good stuff when you got it. So then I, I guess what, what type of stories do, do you like? What, what do you find yourself gravitating towards now that you've been doing this, making comics since the 90s when you were in high school and through mm-hmm. the early days of Iron Circus oh, you yeah. know, and uh, up to now. So what, what have your tastes changed over time and what do you find yourself enjoying nowadays? I like monsters. I like romance. I like romance with monsters. All right. I, <laughs> I like fantasy and sci-fi a whole lot. Um, I think a lot of that is based in sort of when I was growing up, I, I was watching stuff like uh, Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome. I was watching, God, what is that? Oh, Dark Crystal was a big thing with me. I love Dark Crystal. Absolutely. Uh, love it. And I developed an, in, an incredible fixation on uh, The Last Starfighter, if anyone even remembers that one. I, I love The Last Starfighter. Uh, so those are the kind of things I was growing up with. And that was also sort of a period where like video games at home were kind of recovering from the crash because there's that big home gaming system crash. But, you know, I had a Nintendo, sure. uh, I had friends with a Sega, and we had, because my, my dad needed it for work, I 
I have the feeling we had a personal computer in the house earlier than most people had a personal computer in the house. And so okay. we were buying a lot of computer games. And quite frankly, uh, I find myself, well, I do like Slice of Life. I do like True to Life. And I, I occasionally do also like memoirs, you know, asterisks, as long as you have something meaningful to share or say. <laughs> but mm-hmm. um, I, I kind of find myself gravitating towards both fantastical and human stories, like human scale stuff. And it's sure. like, I have found it kind of reflects my interest in history too, because history is, is one of those things that I kind of, I basically consider it a hobby. I read a lot of books about like factual books about history, like Mary Beard books. And I find that that has sort of bled over into my taste for fiction. Whereas I am considerably less interested in the kings and the queens and the chosen ones and the special flowers. And I want to see more about the people who kind of live on the ground floor and have to deal with life as it is handed to them. And there is no grand Tolkien level hero coming to save them. I'm, I'm kind of more interested in, in that level of existence. All right. I, I, yeah, I, I have a tendency to agree, you know, in terms of that's where, my tastes gravitate towards it as well. I, I, I think there's something to be said about those. I like how you put that, those folks that live on the ground floor. Mm-hmm. Um, and I will just want to go back to something you said, uh, just um, to commiserate a bit. I, I once drug my dad to a Marriott or Crown Plaza in Cherry Hill, New Jersey, so I could meet Lance Guest and Catherine Mary Stewart, the two stars <laughs> of The Last Starfighter. Oh, wow! <laughs> That's so cool. So big nerd, me. Yeah, um, yeah. <laughs> yeah I um, I, ugh, I, I have so many like stories about. I, I was doing San Diego Comic Con every year for a while, but mm-hmm. I have stopped doing that. And I remember doing it when, like, now it feels like the best way I can describe it. And I, I can't even say this because, like, has it even happened for the past couple of years? I don't know. But the right. last time I was doing it was fairly recent. And I was getting these flashes of what it looks like when the cattle are being pushed off the trucks at the stockyard and funneled up to the slaughter pit because <laughs> that's how tightly packed it was. I remember when, you know, there was walking room at the Comic-Con and people were leisurely and just sort of like looking at the small press table and the, and the table of people who were just in Artist Alley and they weren't stampeding their way to say a Hayao Miyazaki panel or to see Liv Tyler or something like that. And, and it's, it's, Cons have changed. I know that's like a very basic thing to say, but th- maybe it's because I'm old. I don't know. No, I, 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 they, they definitely have. I mean, it's yeah. just, it's, un, it's unreal when you look back at, at photos from when it yeah. started and, and, and where it is now. And even small, even smaller conventions. Oh, are, yeah. It's, it's weird. It's like the thing I always think about, I, I can't help but see it from this angle just because of sort of where I am positioned in comics. And, but, uh, there's always been that elephant element, excuse me, elephant, ooh, element in comics that there is this sort of like weird kind of skeezy profiteer guy who kind of like slithers up and down the aisles of Artist Alley and he's all like, oh, hey, I can get your stuff in front of so-and-so, just sign all the rights <laughs> over to me. And you know, the tongue comes out like the snake in, in Jungle Book to hypnotize oh. you. And you know, that guy is just, you know, he was always there. He was always part of the scene. 
And maybe it's just my perception, but it feels like that guy has started to asexually bud, you know, and reproduce and just drop clones of himself everywhere. And now when you go to a convention, there are 50 of him and they all say the same thing. And it's just like, oh God, <laughs> one was bad. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, that, no, that's... That that's that is the un, you know that predatory yeah. unfortunate side of it, which, despite mm -hmm. the the good things that I think social media can do by putting people in touch with information, you still have somebody willing to prey on someone else with their idea or their for their yeah. IP. So yeah, I know I sound like super. I sound like the saltiest broad ever. Like I'm really grateful for what comics has done for me. I'm like living the dream. I'm sitting here making comics for a living and actually, you know, buying groceries with the with that money. And I know how privileged my position is. But a whole lot of money has suddenly been dumped in comics uh, in the past decade and a half, I'd say, and it shows. And it's very weird for a person speaking, you know, for myself here who came into the industry at a point where it was arguably at its lowest, where Marvel and DC were laying off, you know, hundreds of employees and declaring bankruptcy. And like, what is it? Like a full third of comic shops in North America shut down. And then there was like a glimmer of hope because of the whole Tokyo pop thing. And then that crashed and burned. And it's all like, cool, we're doomed. And it's like, why am I even getting involved in this industry? It won't be here in 10 years was like the common refrain that you'd hear. It's like, no, do something else. Get involved in illustration or animation before this ship crashes headlong into the iceberg. You need to be <laughs> in the lifeboat. But yeah. But it's still going. It's still going, much to the still annoyance going. of many, I'm sure. <laughs> uh, well, so let me turn now to... Um, in terms of it's still going and your yeah. crowdfunding success with Iron Circus and now this decision yeah. with the Poor Craft Cookbook, the third installment, yeah, I think in the in the Poor Craft series to move away from Kickstarter and uh, fund it through the you know a system of pre-orders essentially through Iron yeah. Circus's website. Yeah. So, what what led to that and you know how did you come up with like, this is what we're going to do this is this is yeah what um in december-ish last year 2021 is when kickstarter sort of announced in a in a way i think even they would acknowledge was not great and not particularly well thought out that they were considering integrating blockchain into kickstarter's functionality and the thing that bothered me isn't that you know, the concept of blockchain. I think a lot of people think I'm like this weird Luddite hissing at it, like Dracula hisses at a cross. And that's not the case. I understand what a blockchain is. It's just a distributed database. And I understand that's sort of a morally neutral thing. That's just a bunch of code. It's, it doesn't, it, it, inherently it is not evil. However, when I would ask questions about like, why are you doing this? How will this change the site? And how will this benefit the people who both run Kickstarters and the people who back Kickstarters? And can you assure that this will be used in a safe and moral way? I got zero answers. And I asked over and over again, what does this mean for the site? What are you going to do? And nothing I heard from the horse's mouth, I'm, I'm not talking about like rumors circulating on 
on, on social media, like from people working in the Kickstarter offices, nothing I got was satisfactory. It, was, it wasn't an explanation I was happy with. And I've come up with an analogy that, that sort of helps people understand my position on this, where you picture Kickstarter as a car and you picture me as a passenger and the folks who are running Kickstarter, they're in the driver's seat. And we have been sailing down the highway and going exactly where we want to go. And everything's been going great. The sun is out, the birds are singing. We're watching the, the rolling green hills whip by as we sail down the road. And then in December, suddenly Kickstarter just took like a super hard right onto a dirt road into the woods that's not on any map and has no signs. And as the trees are closing in and the lights growing dim, they're, they, they, they just keep going. And I lean forward in my chair and I go, hey, where are we going? And Kickstarter just goes, it's fine and keeps driving. <laughs> and I'm going like, no, I, I really need to know why, what, what's with the weird sudden change, like what, what's happening. It's fine. And finally a third time, and I, I, I do this three times because that's really how many times I actually did it. I, I wrote them twice and I had a Zoom call. <laughs> you know, I talked to a bunch of folks over at Kickstarter that I've known for years. And I said, no, really, I need to know where you're going. And I need to know why suddenly we're changing the way we do things. And they just said, it's okay. Would you get out of the car? Because I would. Right. And it's like, that's the moment I decided to get out of the car. I don't know where, we, where, where we're going. I don't know why you're doing this. And I don't know why we had to change. Things were fine. So I need to go. <laughs> I don't want to. Maybe you're going someplace incredible and magical and in 10 years I'll be kicking myself. But if that's the case, I need to know, one, why you aren't telling me that. <laughs> and two, why you can't seem to explain that to anyone else. Like, if I don't know where we're going, I need to get out of the car. And that is why for the foreseeable future, as long as they're sort of sticking to this dark dirt road that's not on any map and has no signposts i can't really be a part of things over there anymore and it's right. no indictment of the people who work at kickstarter or the people that i've known over there for years or the concept of crowdfunding itself like crowdfunding has been an amazing boon to the small press and i think comics are bizarrely well uh, equipped to sort of take advantage of something like Kickstarter just because we are so DIY and unlike a whole lot of other publishing until very recently anyway there is no shame associated with publishing your own comic because for decades that was the only way you were going to get it done so that's what we did and so Kickstarter is the perfect fit for us I, I think crowdfunding in general is the perfect fit for the small press but I, I don't know what's going on over there and I can't be a part of it Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> that's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. Yeah, it's, I mean, just as, you know, certainly in terms of crowdfunding for comics, in terms of what you were saying earlier, the attitude has certainly changed from, you know, 2009 because everyone has you know, big names and brand new creators have crowdfunded comics and used Kickstarter. Um, but I also noticed, I think it was actually today, if I'm not mistaken, Kickstarter came out with a, a statement from their website. It 
the heading is we won't make changes to Kickstarter without you. <laughs> and one, I just wanted to ask you, and because one of the things I, I I'm not a, a technologically savvy person, so one of the when this first happened and we were looking at it at Comic Book Yeti and talking about it, you know, one of the things we were wanted to see where it was the, the white paper, which kind of you know breaks down and explains for anyone that doesn't know a white paper describes like a, a complex issue, you know, so it'll tell what they're trying to do with their decentralized platform and Cello, I believe was where they were going to start to build this decentralized uh, network using blockchain, but it hasn't been issued yet. And so Kickstarter's now come out with this statement, we won't make changes to Kickstarter without you. And they talk about the actions that they're now taking um, I noticed a lot oh. of the, the things on that, the, the actions that they're now taking still don't seem to talk about um, why they're doing this. Yeah, exactly. You know why they're doing it. They say yeah. we'll, we'll not move Kickstarter onto a new protocol unless it's been tested. We will establish an advisory council. Yeah, uh, yeah. So I, I didn't know if you had a, a chance to, it just ha happened today. I don't know if you had a chance to look at it or look at the well, yeah, uh, FAQs I had, and if you had any additional <laughs> thoughts about it. I mean, someone that has I do, done I do. so much with Kickstarter, so I thought you'd be a good person to ask. Yeah, I, have a, <laughs> I do have thoughts, and uh, I was sent this list, rather this link to the, to the new article on Kickstarter by like three people over <laughs> an hour going, have you seen this, have you seen this, have you seen this? And um, yeah. The whole establishing an advisory council, that's literally a thing I suggested in my Zoom meeting with them, where I said that your big problem now is that nobody likes you anymore. And I don't know how you get that back. And what I actually mentioned is, and this is a deep cut, I apologize to your audience, but there is a MMO and it is called Eve Online. And I will spare folks the details, but it was revealed at some point that one of the guilds, we'll say in EVE, was cheating. It was cheating super, super bad and super, super hard. Devs from the game were actually giving this guild end game items and giving them tip-offs for events where they could find all the good loot. They were just doing all kinds of really unfair, unsportsmanlike things. So of course their guild became the most powerful in the game through super unfair, uncool means. And a whole bunch of players when this came to light were not happy. And what Eve decided to do to fix it is kind of have a players council. And I think Eve is based in like Iceland. Uh, they, the, the developers of Eve Online are based in Iceland. And I think okay. that they fly this player's council out to talk to them about changes in the game. And it was like this effort to reestablish trust. That was, that was how they did it. And I brought this up in my meeting with Kickstarter. I'm like, maybe you guys should consider doing something like that. And if you're wondering this whole advisory council thing, yeah, though. <laughs> yeah, that's me. It's interesting to see they actually took me up on it. I didn't think they would. I, think, I still think it's a really good idea. It's just wacky to see them actually doing it. Because if I can be totally frank, seeing as how they reacted to people basically screaming in their thousands on Twitter, please don't do this, I think I, I, I'd assumed they were done listening to us. Yeah, I, it's interesting. I mean, because there is 
social media, Twitter in particular, it, it seems, does you know have a mechanism where people can just yell and scream, and there mm -hmm. isn't a lot of room for nuance at times. Um, so there, you do have to wade through some of that uh, in terms of you know this issue. But it is interesting that Kickstarter has decided to to do that to try and take some step to get more of the community input. I know it wasn't just the comics community. I, I think the gaming community. There yeah, tabletop gaming is especially seen about really, it too. Yeah, really not pleased. I, tabletop gaming especially. Yeah. I, I will say that I, I did look at their Kickstarter protocol, frequently asked questions that says it was updated as, as of today. And the first one is what is Kickstarter trying to solve with the protocol? Mm -hmm. um, I'm going to have to get somebody to explain it to me because I still don't understand <laughs> what they were trying to fix with the new protocol, but um, it's there for anyone that is curious I, about this issue and wants to look at it. Yeah, I just, I, I have a lot of strong feelings and a lot of them are mixed and all I can say with absolute assurity, because like I keep telling people, I wasn't in the room when they made this decision. I don't know what they were thinking. I thought they would never do something like this, but I was clearly wrong. So I'm now no longer willing to tell people what I think they'll do because it's clearly, <laughs> it's clear I don't know. But it's, I wish they weren't doing this, but I think they're making it clear that they are not going to back down, that this is not going to be walked back. There's, if anyone out there is listening to this and they're, they're kind of like sitting tight, maybe they're planning on crowdfunding something on Kickstarter in the future and they're just sort of like, waiting for the smoke to clear and for Kickstarter to post their Mia Culpa Maxima, that, that is, that's not going to happen. Like as a person who once again has talked to folks over there, believe me when I tell you it is not going to happen. They're going to do this. They may delay it. It may take years, but I saw no indication that they were wavering. So plan accordingly. Wow. Um, well, so now let's switch gears because you away from Kickstarter, like Iron yeah. Circus did. <laughs> um, yeah, with uh, a heavy heart. And talk about the Poor Craft Cookbook. I, I noticed earlier you said you think the first the goal for the first Poor Craft was six thousand, and according to the Iron Circus website, the funding goal for the Poor Craft Cookbook was six thousand. Uh, it yeah. looks like as of Right now, with 20 days left to go, it's sitting just shy of $21,000 raised. Yay! So yeah, that's we're a, really excited. That's amazing. Yeah, and yeah. I just want to say that I went through the review copy that I had and didn't quite know. I'm not as familiar with the other Poor Craft books. Mm -hmm. I didn't know quite what to expect. This was delightful. It oh, I'm so glad you liked it. Penny and Millie and uh, the dog's nickel, right? Mm -hmm. Yep. And they, it is, it's, it's so cute and so <laughs> informative. And it's, it's, it delivers information in such a fantastic way. Um, it, the, the first 80 pages, I'd say, are essentially a, an ingredient list and how to shop smarter and um, everything from how to store vegetables and how to um, deal with, you know, storing other items in the kitchen. And then there are 
recipes for the next, I guess, 100 and some pages. I think it's a 200. Oh, yeah. It's book. a real deal and cookbook. It, it, it is. And the, the recipes are diverse. I mean, I, I, um, I had to stop and have a snack because the chilaquiles recipe was just <laughs> before the shakshuka recipe. And at that point, I was hungry. Yeah. So, <laughs> yeah, there's a ton of variety in there. It's great. So, um, and I, it was written, written and illustrated by Nero Villa, uh, Villagalos O'Reilly. Uh-huh. So yeah, tell me, how did this all come about and, and, and why the, the cookbook and what was your input in all of it? Well, the first Porecraft, when it came out, people, they, they loved it and everything. But the feedback we got, the constant feedback was like, oh, you should make a cookbook. There was a cooking chapter in the book. There was a shopping chapter chapter in the book uh, mm-hmm. that talks about, you know, here's how you know a knife is high quality. Go find one at, at a rummage sale because most people don't know a high quality knife from a low quality knife. Here are the basics you need for your kitchen. And here's how to go shopping and don't buy the already cut up carrot sticks. You know, go buy the bag of carrots and cut them up yourself because you'll save a dollar. <laughs> that sort of thing. But people wanted more. They wanted a whole book of that. So... Well, the Kickstarters went in 2009, the very, very tail end of 2009. So tail end, I should mention, that we didn't actually get the payout from it until 2010. The book was finally published because, uh, you know, it took two years to make. The book was finally published in 2012. And the minute it came out, we were deluged with people going, I would, I would love an expansion on the cooking chapter. And so that's kind of always been there in the background. It's like something we, we would love to do. But... At that point, you know, Iron Circus had kind of become this thing that would take up more and more of my time and more and more of my attention. And I already owe people so many scripts. I'm so overcommitted as is, you know, and I could not see myself writing another graphic novel script on top of what I was already promised to people. And so we just kind of backburnered it and we, we just hoped, waited and hoped for the opportunity to bring it back around that somebody would want to take it on. And it turned out Nero was the guy. And I'm so glad he was because it's the book that everyone wanted. And it's clear that the demand is still there, even though it took us 10 years to get around to it. <laughs> uh, so in terms, was there like editorial oversight in terms of, oh, these are the recipes we have to include um, how did that, how did, how was the, were those decisions made? Was that Nero or was that other? Oh, that was, well, we went over the script and we made sure to give him feedback on everything he submitted, but a lot of it, like 95% of the book, that's just all Nero because I trust him. He knows what he's talking about. You know, I just told him like, you know, put in, put in what makes sense. And when he turned in the script, like spell check was pretty much all we really did. <laughs> Okay. It didn't need anything. It was honestly perfect. There are some uh, very smart things done with this cookbook that mm-hmm. um, I I want to I, I have to point out. I feel like uh, my interview style is just Chris Farley in that one SNL sketch uh, <laughs> where he he interviews Paul McCartney. But I I, I just it really loved it so much. And in, in some of the, the smart things that are done in terms of he talks about, uh, or the two characters, Penny and Millie, talk about mm-hmm. some topics that, you know, get a lot of buzz on social media, but there, it's done in, in such 
uh, intelligent way in terms of talking about GMOs and, and what that really means in terms oh, yeah. of food. And the, there was a quote in it that knocked me back and I, I wrote it down. Um, if it's inaccessible to the poor, it's not really that revolutionary. Exactly. Yeah, that is that goes so beyond like just food and cooking, and that is just a well, rule for living. It 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 is, and but it's it's ju it's just dropped in yeah. this discussion of Millie and Penny. I think they're still in the supermarket, yeah. in like the produce aisle when it happens. Like, um, Penny is a covert revolutionary. <laughs> Oh, and there's so many uh, interesting things in terms of like the spices you absolutely need. There, there's so many, so many good things about um, stocking your pantry. And then the recipes themselves were all, I mean, very good and very diverse for a, a lot of different tastes. Um, it was. Yeah. It's, the thing it's I always picture so well is like a lot of people who kind of leave home and maybe didn't have the benefit of a parent or a guardian sort of walking them through some basic cookery so they could you know fledge from the nest with a with a library of dishes they could make right. for themselves this there are people out there who spend i'm talking years you know with just like toast and canned soup <laughs> and, and right. maybe like a lean cuisine every now and again and like they don't necessarily like it, but they feel they don't have any more options. And just like eating out every night is not a thing they can do. And right. this is kind of, this book is for more than just those people, but it's like, especially for those people, people who don't, didn't have the benefit of a home education on cookery and kind of don't know where to start. Because quite frankly, if you, if you're wanting to get into it, it can be very overwhelming. Oh, Sure. Oh, I was also just thinking, I mean, uh, I'm married, uh, my wife and I have two kids, and we, there's a, a rack, a shelf in the kitchen filled with cookbooks that are never cracked open because yeah. they're too complicated. The kids don't eat any of it, and <laughs> we never look at it. And I, yeah. But I thought some of these, like to introduce the kids to other things that you know oh they can make too because a lot of the recipes aren't terribly complicated but it's 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 using the pantry to the best of your ability you know because you're trying to maximize whatever it is you have and they're flavorful um yeah i i just i i thought it was great i was i have i'm, I'm down <laughs> ooh, i have oh god i could be here all day i have opinions <laughs> with a capital o on sort of the food industrial complex or the food internet scene and a thing that i always try to sort of present delicately when i'm talking about this but simultaneously be firm in pointing it out is that it's a very crowded scene these days like anyone who can figure out WordPress has the potential to be the next big thing. And I, I think a lot of them realize that and maybe they wouldn't give voice to that ambition, but it's kind of always there at the back of their mind when they, when they update a post. And there are people who, you know, started out online with their little cooking blogs. The next thing you know, they're on the food network or whatever. And that, that's a thing that can happen. And, yeah a way people can get attention which is put to nefarious and diabolical use on places like tiktok but less so on actual real food blogs is if they can just get put their own little weird twist on something maybe they'll get 
you know, that extra click or that extra article written about them or that extra link on Bon Appetit. So when they're telling you to cook chicken soup, you know, oh, wait, no, don't use that. Don't use onions, use shallot. Don't use chicken, <laughs> use the black chicken from the Chinese supermarket. Don't use celery, use celeriac and make sure that the broth has a touch of kombucha and all this other stuff. And I just picture people who are new to cooking going, oh, chicken soup, I'll make chicken soup. That sounds simple. And that's the first recipe they find, someone who is making an attempt to stand out in the ultra crowded food space and as a result, they have posted this borderline absurd nightmare of a recipe. And that's instantly discouraging because you don't have a single one of those things in your cabinet. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. You don't have the, the budget to head down and get all these specialist products from the specialist supermarkets that are in three different stores 20 miles from each other around town. So you're just like instantly discouraged and you have a hot pocket. And I think that happens <laughs> unfortunately frequently. And that's why I really love Nero's approach, especially when, you know, if you look on his Twitter right now, he's, he's cooking some of these recipes from, from the book and his whole attitude is like, if you don't have this, it's fine. Okay, this is breadcrumbs, but whatever, I'm just doing this. And also you can add this, but you know, you don't have to if you don't want to. And that to me is what home cooking should be. Yeah. Yeah, I, I agree. Yeah, one of the well, the original Porecraft had a recipe I called "Clean the Fridge Fried Rice," and like that's that's how foods like that started. It's just okay; the, the, these carrots are not looking great. It's time to make fried rice. These scallions have maybe a day left. It's time to cook them before they are literally inedible. And that's where dishes like fried rice and a lot of soups and stews come from. It's just using stuff up. It's not going out and intentionally buying stuff. Right. Yeah, no, that's true. We, um, I think once every maybe two weeks, we'll have a clean out the fridge or freezer uh, yeah. event <laughs> where we, uh, you know, try to put together whatever it is we find. And it's usually the best meal of the week. <laughs> yeah. I don't think I've ever made a muffin that wasn't some sort of this fruit is not long for this world rescue <laughs> operation. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. When the bananas start to exactly. start to go, it's like, all right, and you smoothie or muffin? What's it going to yeah, be? Too far gone to just peel and eat straight, but you know, not so far gone that you should throw it away. What can we do with this? Oh, I know muffin. There you go. Well, uh, before I let you go, I because I I don't want to keep you here too long. I appreciate all your time, Spike. Um, oh, no since problem. We're talking, since we're talking about food, uh, I wanted to ask you what what is your favorite comfort food? Oh my God. I have a huge issue with Korean food. I eat so much Korean food. And there are these Korean rice cakes. And they are basically these, these little cylinders. The dish is called tteokbokki. And it's, it's absolutely junk food. <laughs> but it's so good. And basically, you get these, these little Korean rice cakes, these cylinders. You could get them in frozen form, which is better, or you could get them in dried form, which is fine, but not as good, but still delicious. And you soak them, and they turn into these fabulous, soft, chewy pillows. And then you cover them in this really sweet, spicy sauce, uh, gochujang, and it's red pepper paste and mm -hmm. also a bit of sugar in it. And you mix up the rice cakes and the, 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 the gochujang, and you add whatever you want. You can add cubes of spam, you can add 
uh, fish cakes, you can add mushrooms, you can add whatever, and maybe a dash of like broth to make it a little more soupy. You can make it super dry, you can make it a little, little soupy, it's all up to you. And then you sprinkle the top. A lot of people use mozzarella, I don't always use mozzarella, but you sprinkle the top with like mozzarella cheese and then you stick that under the broiler and you let it like bubble and brown and then you eat that and you feel bad about yourself, but it's really good. <laughs> I, I got thrown for a second when I heard mozzarella and I was yeah. like, okay, oh, well, yeah. now I'm, with, I'm still with you. I'm still oh, with yeah. you. It's like, oh. I could go into like the food history of Korea, but they have so many amazing cheese dishes over there, like cheese corn. Oh my God. And uh, there's a special, there's a Korean special uh, called army Base stew, which is like, again, it's sort of like the epitome of scratching together what you could find and throwing it all on a pot. But now it's like this uh, incredible delicacy that when you hear the components of it, you're like, that sounds totally insane. But it's delicious because it's like a bunch of dried ramen and also some slices of processed cheese. You can't use real cheese. You have to use the processed stuff. You have to use the craft singles. And then you <laughs> add in some tabaki and then you add in, you know, what slices of fish or meat do you have hanging around? Throw those in there too. Boil some eggs as well. Do you have some bamboo? Throw that in too. It's amazing. Army based stew, everyone. If you ever go to a Korean restaurant, see if they have it and have it. Yeah, I'm I'm gonna head it's too late I think to head to one now, but uh, <laughs> tomorrow 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 lunch is open. <laughs> go for it. You won't be sorry. It's crazy good. It, it, Korean food is one of those types of foods that I was never exposed to early on. My 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 parents had always fairly bland tastes, everything, you know, in terms uh -huh. of meat was well done. And my mom's specialty oh, no! Oh, oh, my dad, no. my dad worked shift work when I was a kid and he, he worked midnight um, or when he worked three to 11, I guess. My mom was in charge of dinner. She'd make almost the same thing, which she would just brown hamburger, which she calls Hamburg, um, in a pan. <laughs> she drained the oil. She put Kraft American cheese over top of it and melt it. Like it looked like a giant hamburger patty and then she'd oh, make Velveeta God. shells and cheese and we'd have that like every night because it, oh. it was one of the only things she she could make oh um, my God. um oh, no. yeah, she's she's great but uh she does make really nice lasagna uh now um but when i was yeah. a kid that was like the be all and end all but I, yeah when i you know went to school went to college in philadelphia and philly and then uh started to expand my taste horizons and uh korean food it was it was like i was i i think i went nuts like there was bibimbap and everything yeah. i just i went to town i was like i'm never leaving this restaurant they're gonna yeah, have some to of my favorite somebody. yeah some of my favorite cuisine these days is asian cuisines like i love japanese food i love korean food i love szechuan food i love all kinds of food thai food i just i love mm -hmm. if it's on that part of the continent <laughs> It's like, I'm willing to give it at least a try, it turns out. Yeah, I agree. Uh, well, all right, now that I'm hungry, and uh, <laughs> the audience is probably hungry, um, I really appreciate all your time, Spike. I uh, wish the rest, of the, camp the rest of the campaign with the Poor Craft Cookbook, I wish Iron Circus uh, the best of luck, and hopefully uh, the next project, um, we can uh, talk again somewhere down the line. Absolutely, I'd love that, thank you. All right, well, this is uh, Jimmy Gasparro for Comic Book Yeti's Cryptid Creator Corner. Uh, until next time. Thank you. Bye, everyone. <laughs>
This is Byron O'Neill, one of your hosts of the Cryptid Creator Corner, brought to you by Comic Book Yeti. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of our podcast. Please rate, review, subscribe, all that good stuff. It lets us know how we're doing, and more importantly, how we can improve. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode of the Cryptid Creator Corner, maybe you would enjoy our sister podcast, Into the Comics Cave. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.